Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Memorial Day weekend. And again, thank you for all who have served. God bless you. The sermon that I'm going to be preaching this morning is part of a sermon series that's entitled Rise Up. This morning's sermon is entitled Getting Up. Getting Up. Now, before I get there, though, there's a couple of things that I wanted to quickly make mention of. And that is this. If you are newer to city, we are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. And what that means is, is that we believe that the Bible brings to us the story of God, the whole arc of the story of God, beginning in the book of Genesis, concluding in the book of Revelation. And in there, we find out who God is, most specifically through the person of Jesus. But the Bible, the scriptures also call us to live for Jesus and what that looks like. So we are biblically based. We're also relationally driven. And relationally driven means that we believe and Jesus teaches that relationship is the most important thing in life. Jesus put it this way, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What he's teaching is, is that relationship with God and relationships with people is the epicenter of life. Then the last thing is we're spirit-led. What we believe we've experienced and the Bible teaches is that God through Christ sends the Holy Spirit into the world so we can live out what we learn in the scriptures and that we would also have the Holy Spirit to help us in the relationships of our lives, our relationship with God, and our relationships with people. We have two more Sundays in this Rise Up sermon series. Next Sunday morning, my son Peter will be preaching. He will be sharing next week. And then the following week is Pentecost Sunday. And so the title of that sermon will be Rise Up, Filling Up, Pentecost Sunday. Following that, for the summer, we're going to go through the book of Mark. So we're going to have a two-month, two-and-a-half-month sermon series based on the gospel of Mark, and that's going to be entitled Faith for the Real World. Faith for the Real World. For this morning, for Rise Up, Getting Up, I'm going to be taking pretty much the theme for this entire series from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. We're going to get there in just a moment. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Now, what we have learned throughout this sermon series is the following, is that it's very rare that we will rise up the way God wants us to without either an event or a person getting in front of us and calling us to that new level. Again, it either takes an event or a person, and oftentimes the ones that really move us are a combination of both, where there's an event and a person come together, and that calls us or causes us to rise up to the level God is calling us to. We're getting ready to read one of those in just a moment. Now, to set the emotional context for what we're getting ready to read, not the biblical context, we'll get there in a moment, but the emotional context, I want to share with you a story. The story is this, because the story we're getting ready to read is about a man 
who's been an invalid for 38 years, and then he meets Jesus. As I read this story this week and prayed it through and looked at it for the past several days, I found myself emotionally remembering an event when I first got here as the pastor. It's probably about 18 years ago. I received a call at City Church Central where there was a nurse who was part of City that said, Pete, I don't normally do this, but I'm asking you if you would please come and visit a specific patient. I said, sure. So I went up to UVA Medical Center and I was directed to the children's ward, which in my humble opinion is the most difficult place to visit at UVA Hospital. So I went up to the children's ward and when I got there, the nurse that I knew pulled me aside and she said, look, what you're getting ready to see is gonna be difficult. And she said, the other complication is, is that this little boy and his mother are immigrants and they only speak Spanish. And so it's very difficult for communication and the mother as oftentimes kind of that Hispanic makeup of a mother and she was a single mother she at times would be given to hysteria. So I walked into the room and I'll never forget what I saw. The boy was four years old. He was four years old and he was covered in chicken pox from head to toe. They were also inside his mouth, on his eyelids, all over his body. I've never seen anything like it. And to restrain him from just perpetually itching his body, they had to strap him down. And as I was there, the nurse that had got me to show up kind of ushered me through the door and she left. And the nurse that was there, I began to ask her questions and she said, well, the complication is this, this little boy has basically no immune system. And once he got these chicken pox, they have completely overtaken his body. And she said, the concern is his immune system is not responding. So I went and saw him once, and then I went back to see him again. And the second time I went back, I took uh, an individual from City Church that if you were here a long time ago, you would remember his name. His name was Jamie Tarr. And I took Jamie Tarr with me, and we went in to visit this little boy. And as I was visiting the boy, something happened to me that I had not experienced before, and that was I became overwhelmed with the emotional reality of what that mother was facing. She was in a foreign country. Just by looking at her, I knew she was in total poverty. She just lived in absolute poverty. She was a single mother, and here she is in a country where she doesn't understand the mother language, and here she is as a mom, and she's looking over her son. She is weeping profusely, and I just suddenly was gripped with the emotional desperation of that context. I was sitting there looking at it, and all of a sudden, Jamie Tarr said to me, he said, Pastor, you don't look right. And I looked up, and when I did, the room began to spin. And he said, I think you'd better sit down. And he took me, and he kind of led me to a chair. And sitting there, it dawned on me that I had become overwhelmed by the emotional kind of context of what was going on in that room. I had never experienced that before. But one of the things that permeated that emotion was sheer desperation, but also despair. Because what I noticed among the nurses is they didn't really have a pep in their step. You could tell they had kind of resigned that this young boy's life 
would be at an end soon. Never forget that. Just the utter despair that was in that room. When I went back to see him again, he was gone. And I went to the nurse's station and I said, what happened to that young boy? And she recognized me as a pastor. And she said, what we did was we actually sent him down to Duke Medical and he's going to be having a bone marrow transplant with the minimal hope that somehow he would develop an immune system that would be able to battle what he's battling with. And I said, do you think that'll work? And she said, no, I don't. The reason why I'm sharing that story, it's not to bum you out, but it's to set the emotional context for the story we're getting ready to read. Let's read it together. It's John chapter five, verses one through 15. The healing at the pool. Let's read. It says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. It does not tell us which one, and that's on purpose. Reading on, it says, there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind the lame, and the paralyzed. You see, Jesus is moving towards this pool of Bethesda, and it's a place of utter despair, hopelessness, brokenness. Jesus moves towards this pool. Now, if you're reading in your Bible, if you have your smartphone or you have your Bible that you brought with you, you will notice something interesting, and that is there is no verse 4. What you find in John 5, 1 through 15, is it goes from verse 3 right to verse 5, but there's a little footnote in your Bible, and it will say this, most ancient reliable texts do not have what we're getting ready to read next. But I want to read it because it provides context, not emotional context, but cultural context. If you were to look to the bottom of the page of your Bible or on your smartphone, here's what you would find it says. It says, after saying the word paralyzed, it would say this, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, and the first one into the pool, after each disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. So picture this. You've got this pool of Bethesda. I want to show you a picture of the pool very quickly. Here's a picture of what's been excavated of the pool of Bethesda. I don't know if you can notice, but there's an individual in the bottom right-hand corner. I stood there about a month and a half ago when I was visiting Israel. Again, I was stunned by the depth of the pool. It's about a 35-foot drop from the edge to the bottom. Now, if you actually walk down a set of steps, there's this little tiny aquifer in the very bottom of a deeper pit that's been dug out where water is still flowing. But at the time of Jesus, this thing was full to the brim, full to the brim. And if you were to read up on what archaeologists believe, they believe there were two pools. This is part of one that's been excavated, and both of the pools could have been as large as a football field. So picture, Jesus is going in, 
As he's moving towards the pool of Bethesda, there's these colonnades that surround the pool, and there are five covered colonnades, and these people are sitting there, and it's as large as a football field. And they're staring at the water, they're watching the water, and what they're praying for is, is that if an angel comes down and troubles the water, the first one in wins. Can you imagine the despair and the stress of that? It's hard to even imagine. Now, full disclosure, there's no evidence at all that anyone was ever healed. As a matter of fact, most historians believe it was sheer superstition. It's all it was. It was a myth, superstition, or a legend. And yet, when you are desperate, and no one can help you. You do whatever you can to get well. Let's pick up our reading. The Bible begins to tell us about this individual that Jesus will interact with. It says this about him. It says, and one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the one who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. I think you would have done it too. Reading on. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to them, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. What a powerful story. When we look at this story and we have this idea of getting well, When we look at this story, what we're going to do for this sermon is we're simply going to follow the quotes of the conversation between Jesus and the invalid. Do you notice that Jesus asks him a question? It almost seems rude. Do you want to get well? My response would have been, you don't think I'm just laying here for my health, do you? Pun intended. But Jesus looks at him and says, do you want to get well? Please understand this. Bring back again the kind of emotional context that I set up at the beginning. Can you imagine 38 years, you're an invalid. You've been sitting by the pool for 38 years. No telling how old this guy is. But Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? His response isn't yes. We'll get to his response in a moment. 
But when Jesus asked him the question, you can almost get the sense that maybe the question ignited hope again. The hope's been gone for a long, long time. Notice what the Bible calls him, an invalid. For 38 years, this man's been an invalid. And as I looked at that word and I kind of studied it and pondered it, it dawned on me that the word invalid is the same word as invalid. You don't count. In other words, if you fill out some type of a form and you put the wrong information in, it gets discarded. You are invalid. Your form is invalidated. This man is invalid. He's an invalid. He doesn't count. And if the Bible is true, and it always is, Leviticus 21.18 tells us that those who are crippled or lame or blind are not allowed at the center of the worship of God. But what's stunning is Jesus finds him. Most people find Jesus and ask to be healed. Jesus finds him. And what you also need to know about context is that the pool of Bethesda is within a stone's throw of the temple. It's almost like you can be in the pool of Bethesda and just walk for about a minute and you're on the temple mount. So picture this. Here's the center of worship and then a stone's throw away is the center of despair. And Jesus goes there. That ought to tell us something about Jesus. Jesus isn't in the temple. He's looking for those who are filled with despair. But he asked him the question, do you want to get well? You would think the answer would be an immediate yes, but think a little bit more deeply. He's been this way for 38 years. It's his entire life. I would put it to you this way, it's become his identity. What happened to him 38 years ago is now his identity. It's the center of who he is. And I want to speak to us along those lines just for a moment. And I want to be honest, but pastorally. Victimhood has become one of the most powerful positions in our culture. If you are in a room, the person who's been victimized the most or can, who can articulate that becomes the most powerful person in the room. I want to say that that should never be for a follower of Jesus. We are not victims. We are people that God deals with in the midst of even the most harshest of circumstances, things that you would never ever sign up for. But as a follower of Jesus, Jesus is the baseline of your identity, not being a victim. Jesus and who he is digs way down underneath culture, underneath being Italian or Irish or whatever it is. I remember one time this guy came to faith in Jesus and I was talking to him and he had a raging temper and he said, Pete, but you know I'm Irish, don't you? And I thought to myself, God doesn't care that you're Irish. It's the identity of Christ and how he reaches under that. He does that with the worst of contexts that people have lived through. Jesus creates in us an identity in him. 
Maybe when Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? It injects just a little bit of hope. Now, I do want to say this, though. If you know you've been the victim of some type of prejudice, and prejudice is real, if you've been the victim of something, your identity is in Jesus, but that does not mean that you don't fight for justice. It does not mean that we, all of us, who our identities are in Christ, when we see injustice that we don't say something. As a matter of fact, I think Christians should be out front of every act against injustice that there is. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but what I'm saying is your identity is in Christ. You are not a victim. There's hope in him. Now Jesus says, do you want to get well? There's a call in that to move towards healing. I want to make the same call. Some of you, you have had things happen to you that you would never sign up for. The question is, do you really want to get well? Are you willing to open up your heart to Jesus and truly be honest about where you're at and who you are and what you're wrestling with? Do you want to get well? One of the things that we're going to be doing, and you're going to hear about it in very short order, is that Stephen, our worship pastor, and I have been having a lengthy dialogue about having special nights for prayer and for worship where we're going to be praying for the sick. We're also going to be open to the fullness of the Holy Spirit that he can have his way fully and freely in us. Sunday mornings are not the place for that in its greatest extent. But I believe that we need opportunities where we come and we pray and we worship and we allow God to touch us and to move in and through our hearts. We see that throughout the, old, the Newer Testament. Sunday mornings is not the place for that. But my question is, is if you want to get well, could you commit now to being a part of that? Where you will step out, you'll trust Jesus, and you'll allow people to pray with you and to pray for you. I think it's so important to do that. Now Jesus says to the man, do you want to get well? His response is this, sir, the invalid replied, the one who is invalid. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me to get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. It's interesting to note that if you pull a couple of the words out, and I did that as I was prayerfully studying this, and here are the words that jumped out to me. It's this, no one for me, someone else always wins. No one is there for me. Someone else always wins. Never me. Now that could be true. But if you read back into this story and if you take the, the story in its total verbiage, what you'll find is, is that Jesus insinuates, and we're going to get there in a moment, that there was something to do with sin that had caused this reality in this man's life. It could be that no one was there for him because of what made him an invalid. 
was the result of some sin that he had participated in. People had backed away and left him. It could also be that the people cared at the beginning, but as time went on, because it's been 38 years, they have moved on and decided to help someone else. But here's what I do know, is what this man is doing is he's been waiting for 38 years for a myth, for superstition, for stuff that really doesn't work. I want to comment on superstition for a moment. I feel like I need to be very pastoral this morning. It's this. I remember so clearly, again, way back when I first came to City, we had a New Year's Eve service, and I will never forget this. In that New Year's Eve service, we were praying about the new year. We were asking God to be with us. It was a powerful time. There weren't a lot of people in the church then. It was a very small group of people. We were praying about the future. And as we were exiting, I was shaking hands at the door as I always do. And I was shaking hands and this person looked at me and I said, I'm excited for the new year. How about you? And they looked at me and here's what they said. Never forget this. They said, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna get out a salt shaker and I'm gonna put salt in my hand and when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'm gonna throw it over my shoulder so that I know I'll have a good year. I thought, what? <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, that superstition had a stranglehold on that person. We had just come through about an hour of prayer and worship where God's presence was there, people being touched. Last year was being peeled off of people. There was hope for the future and this person was focused on throwing salt over their shoulder. I mean, it sounds comical, but don't all superstitions? But a lot of times we have these little things that drive our lives that have nothing to do with Jesus, nothing. This person's entire future, their entire hope, was pinned on a superstition, a myth. Well, what the Bible says, Jesus asked that question, do you want to get well? And the person says, the invalid says, but there's no one here to help me. There's no one, and someone else always gets in first. Now, as a quick aside... Here's what I can guarantee you is happening. For 38 years, he had probably moved to where he's no longer right on the edge of the water. That pool is deep. It's deep. But can you imagine you're an invalid and there's no one there to help you and what you do is you get on the very edge and all of a sudden you think the waters are troubled so you roll in. If you get in second place, you drown. Think about that. Think about the hopelessness of that. You're on the edge, and when the water ripples, you roll. But unfortunately for you, someone was already standing ankle deep. It's over. So Jesus goes up to this person and says, do you want to get well? And they said, no one's here for me. Someone else always wins. And Jesus looks at them and says this, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And the guy does. He gets up, and he picks up his mat, and he walks. 
The problem is it's on the Sabbath. And to carry a mat on the Sabbath is against the law of God. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And there's little doubt, and we're not going to go into it, but Jesus intentionally healed him on the Sabbath. It's not the first time Jesus intentionally healed on the Sabbath, and it's not the last. But the man gets up, and he's carrying his mat. And what's really stunning, and you cannot get this in English, but when he says, get up, it is the root word for resurrection. There's a lot of other words you could say that would say get up, but this is the word for resurrection. In other words, when you get up, it will not be because of something from this world. When you get up, it's going to be something supernatural, something you've never heard of. It's called resurrection life, and it's only available at the command of Jesus. It's the only place it can be found. If you look at our story, what you will find is that this man is raised up. He exits that place of despair. And the next time we find him, Jesus finds him in the temple worshiping. Most likely, he's never been there before to worship. For 38 years, he was not allowed to worship. He was crippled. Leviticus says, no one can go that's blind or lame or crippled. And so here he is, and he's worshiping God. And Jesus knew, as this man was a Jew, that that's where he would go to worship. And Jesus finds him. But Jesus says something to him that really grips our hearts. And Jesus says, see that you're well again. Stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. It seems cold. It seems icy. But what I want to say is so important for us to get a hold of. Just because you've had a power encounter with Jesus does not mean that you know how to follow him or to live life to the fullest. It doesn't. Oftentimes we read these stories and we falsely assume just because his legs now work, just because whatever created him to be invalid created him or made him into being an invalid, just because he's been touched by Jesus, that does not mean he knows how to live life. If you think being crippled for 38 years and Jesus heals you and you seamlessly walk back into culture and there's no bumpiness, there's no uneasiness, you're out of your mind. He would have to learn how to live. He would have to learn how to process in culture. But again, I think we read these stories and we think just because Jesus healed them, everything's gonna be exactly as it should be. The Bible does not say that that's how this works. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul throughout his writings talks about you and I encountering Jesus and then learning how to live. He'll say, put this off, put this on. Move away from this, move towards that. Why? Because just because we've been touched by Jesus and resurrection life has brought us to new life, it does not mean that innately we know how to do it all. It does not. And so Jesus loops back around and he's discipling him. Learning how to live as a follower of Jesus is key. At City Church, we just began to run what is called a discipleship class called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's a powerful course. 
We've been running soul care for some time, and we had over 250 people go through soul care. Now Pastor Gabe, who's our congregational care pastor, has launched this thing called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's powerful. But what people are finding is Jesus has touched them. He's revolutionizing their lives. But we still have to understand biblically what it looks like to be emotionally healthy and to be spiritually healthy. I want to encourage you that if Jesus has touched you the next time we offer that course, please take it. But as we close out our time, here's what the Bible says. Jesus looks at him and says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I know we don't like it, but believe it or not, Jesus loves you enough to tell you when you're wrong. <laughs> Isn't that novel? We live in a culture where love means tolerance. Anything goes, if you love me, just let me. No, not with Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Bible says God disciplines those that he loves. Thank God he does. And here Jesus finds this guy and he's learning how to walk, but there's something in his life and Jesus says to him, stop sinning or something worse may happen. But please understand this. It's clear from other things Jesus says, speaking of which, it's John chapter nine, where Jesus does not always assimilate suffering with personal sin. He doesn't. In this case, he does. Some sin created the reality of this man being an invalid. But Jesus now comes back to him and he says to him, stop sinning or something worse might happen. The man obviously knows what that is. Jesus does not, though, always assimilate sin with suffering, not personal sin at least. Because in John chapter 9, there's a guy who's born blind. And the disciples ask him, was it his sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be blind? Jesus says, neither. Neither one. There's no connection between personal sin and this suffering. But for the guy that was by the pool of Bethesda, there is. When Jesus says to him, stop sinning or something else worse may happen, please understand the grace in that. And the love in that. Here's why. Notice that when Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? The guy says, there's no one here for me. Someone else always wins. And what does Jesus say to him? Get up and walk. He did not say, go clean up your life. Get out of your sin. Get everything polished clean. And then we'll talk about your healing. Isn't it amazing? Jesus heals him when he's still sinning. Jesus loops around, finds him in the temple. Could have been a week later. He says, now look, man, you're well, but spiritually, you need to grow. You need to understand what it looks like to follow God and to follow me. You need to stop sinning. Interestingly, the Bible never tells us what a sin is. Don't you wish you knew? In fact, some of you have been sitting here guessing. I wonder what the sin was. My thing is, is how much sin can an invalid even get involved with? All the things I can think of in my own life, they wouldn't really affect me if I was an invalid. 
but not this guy. But the reason why the Bible doesn't tell us is because maybe your sin that you know right now God's knocking on your heart about is the one you need to deal with. You know what it is. And Jesus is here because he loves you. What we're going to do next is we're going to move towards communion. And as we move towards communion, I want you to think through what we've talked about this morning. Do you want to get well? If you do, get involved in the prayer efforts here at City. Do you want to get well? Move beyond being a victim and find your identity in Jesus and keep it there. You want to get well? Walk away from superstition. Focus on Jesus. If you want to stay well, if Jesus convicts you of sin, walk away from it and live for him. The last thing this guy does is he goes to the Jewish leaders and he tells them it's Jesus that made him whole. One of the most beautiful things in life is to be touched by Jesus and then tell others about it. As we prepare for communion, we're going to do it just a little bit differently than normal. I'm going to ask at this moment that those veterans and their spouses that we've asked to help us serve, if you would stand at this time and move to the stations that you were assigned to. Everyone that is serving us is either a veteran or the spouse of a veteran. And what we're going to do in order to take communion together is in just a moment, I'm going to ask that you would slip out from where you're seated and that you would exit to your left. Go to the station that's nearest to you, pick up the cup and the bread, and then return from the other end of the row to the seat where you're now seated. I'm going to do that in just a moment. But as we prepare our hearts for communion here at City, we invite everyone to partake with us. If you are a person that has said yes to Jesus, maybe you're sitting here right now and for the first time in your life, you're thinking to yourself, I want to say yes to Jesus. Say yes to him right now by faith. And then I invite you to take communion with us because we're going to celebrate again what Jesus has done for us. The question is, do you want to get well? Is getting well something that you sense that you need to move towards? I want to encourage you to do that. And communion is clearly part of that biblically. So at this time, those veterans and spouses that are going to be serving us are prepared to serve. I'm going to ask that we would stand together in God's presence. And as we stand together, Take a moment just to examine your heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that I'll be reading from in just a moment calls us to examine our hearts in God's presence. Is there anything that keeps you in the way of getting well? Just like what Jesus did for that man who was by the pool of Bethesda, he does for us now. He loves us. He reaches out to us. Here's something that we need to ask for forgiveness of from God. Here's something we need to repent of before the Lord. 
let's take a moment to let Jesus examine our lives. And remember, when Jesus brings something to light, it never condemns us. He always encourages us to step towards him and to be free. Let's take a moment. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love us enough to be honest with us, that you love us enough to warn us. Thank you that in you we have the power of the Holy Spirit to live a new life, to live differently and to find forgiveness through you. So in this moment, we confess to you our sin and we ask that you would forgive us, that you would touch our lives. And we pray this. And we believe for this in Christ's name, in Jesus' name.